This is an ABC podcast. This is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Hi, I'm Bobby McCumber and this is Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. Anne Singio's childhood was an adventure. She spent it exploring Palau's 500 islands with her dad and siblings, discovering a new one each weekend. But it wasn't just for fun. Those trips carried valuable lessons about the land, about community and about life. And those lessons would lead Anne to start the Ebil Society, a non-profit that aims to protect and manage the environment using Indigenous knowledge. It also runs a kids' summer camp. Anne Ali. Ali. And how would you describe your dad, the man who took you island hopping every weekend? <laughs> he was a happy person. And he was an adventurer. So it was just his energy and uh, and kind of made us, gave us that environment to uh, grow up within. <laughs> he was also an educator. He liked children and uh, carried on such a... Uh, positive and very um, uh, encouraging personality. And I think it made him a really good person when it came to educating young people. And that was, was reflected in the way that we grew up. Your dad also had a big social conscience. How did he share that with you and your siblings? He kind of taught us really early on, like, in the morning, if if my mom was nagging, he would say, <laughs> I know, he would say, don't be putting out this negative energy in the house. These kids have to go out and face the world. And if they're defeated at home, how do they solve any problems or challenges when they're out there? This is the place where they're supposed to be safe and uh, supported so that they can go out and face the different places, different world. And so we kind of use this against our mom. So whenever she was nagging, we're like, <laughs> I know, we're like, Dad, mom is spreading negative energy. You poor mom. I really, I feel sorry for him now that I'm an adult with children. And so he was always encouraging us. Um, he would say to my mom, you know, school, the academics is important, but it's not the only place to learn. A big part of education for children is the social environment that they live in. And so if you prohibit them from interacting in that space, then you're limiting their development. And so we kind of took advantage of those things when it came to <laughs> going out with friends or <laughs> doing all uh, kinds of activities after school. And my mom would be like, you guys need to be also mindful about the home. And we're like, this is an important part of our development. <laughs> so, yeah, we used it whenever we could. Yeah. I love it. Uh, you said, and that your dad, you went on adventures with your dad. What did you do on those adventures mm. with him? Oh, man, everything. I mean... You know, Palau has about 500 different islands and a lot of them are in, uninhabited. And so this became our huge playground. That place now is actually a world heritage. But right. before it was a world heritage, 
I actually grew up exploring these islands. And so he would be like, okay, which island are we going to claim for the weekend? And we would go set the camp. There were even times where we would just go for a day. And then towards the end of the day, uh, we would watch the sunset. And then before we know it, the moon is rising. And then my, my dad would be like, hey, wait a minute. The moon is supposed to be really big tonight. And we're like, yeah. And he's like, well, I say that this is a perfect time to camp. My mom is like screaming on one side. No, no, we did not come here to camp. We are not prepared to camp. And we're like, mom, come on. You don't have to be a party pooper. And then my dad is like, we're going to starve. And we're like, are you kidding? We have enough food to stay here for a week. And then my dad's like, then it is settled. This family is camping and you should see my mother. She is like spitting nails. And we're like, camp time, build a fire. That's that's how I grew up. That's really how I grew up. It's crazy. Yeah. Uh, your mom has, uh, yeah. she sounds a lot like my mom, if I'm honest. <laughs> what is your most stark memory from those times, Anne? Oh, oh, man. He never wanted us to really bring food to the campsite. He would always say, nope, we're catching our food. We're going to eat fresh fish from the ocean. So whenever we get to the island, we just drop off my mom and the, the younger siblings. There were six of us. And so we drop off the younger siblings and then we're out fishing with him. And he would always control what we were catching. He would be like regulating that, like that's enough, you know, really that it's too small we don't eat that make sure you don't hurt it and put it back in the ocean at first he would be catching fish eventually he wasn't fishing he was teaching he would just drive the boat get us to the site and then he would sit there helping us with the catch and and uh, replacing hooks and and then really teaching us about the ocean and then eventually i got older and I love trolling. Trolling meant that you went outside of the reef. And so it wasn't until I was much older that he probably felt confident bringing me out there. And eventually he also started just kind of sitting there. And then one of my siblings would drive the boat and he would be like, okay, maintain your distance from the reef. And this is where the fish would be feeding. And then he would be teaching me on, I'm the one holding the line. So yeah, I learned a lot about, I think, fish behavior, habitat, and also conservation. It sounds like your dad's social conscious came into play on those fishing trips as well. Tell me about the time you and your siblings really overfished. Oh my gosh. We went to camp on this island and he was like, okay, so there's... um, particular area that I really is a perfect time to be fishing from at this time of the the moon cycle. When we got there, we dropped everybody on the island and he says, as the moon rises, it's the time to catch the fish. So we started fishing and uh, there was a lot of fish. I mean, there's so much fish that the bait would not even reach the bottom of the seafloor and it was already caught. And so we were so excited. And he, after only a certain number of fish, he was like, that's enough, guys. 
we're only here to catch enough to eat for tonight and in the morning and then we go home but we were like but come on dad there's so much fish look we don't even have to sometimes we were not even putting the bait yeah it was crazy and so we didn't listen and then a 50 quart uh, cooler was full and some of the fish couldn't even go in there and he was like look at this look at how much fish you've caught and he says what are you going to do there's no ice and we're going to be here until tomorrow he was like you guys are going to smoke all the fish and we're like what he's like yeah you guys are going to have to smoke all the fish tonight (laughs) and so we got to the island everyone else was having a blast and the two of us were smoking fish And the thing is, like, this is in the natural environment. There's not even, like, a smoker or anything there. We had to make our own smoker, which was kind of cool because I was Mm -hmm. like, oh, you can do this. (laughs) Okay, so so we set our own smoker, and he was there, so he was guiding us. We were so tired, and he's like, nope, you got to make sure that everything is done. They even went to sleep, and we were up until morning smoking the fish. And so in the morning, we were like... Yeah, we did it. And then we returned home that afternoon. And he was like, ah, the two of you, your work is not done. Now you get the food containers and then you put all the smoke fist in there and you walk through the neighborhood and you distribute smoke fist to every household in this neighborhood. And we're like, what? Can somebody else do it? We've already smoked the fist. It's like nobody else caught the fist except the two of you. And we're like, oh. <laughs> start walking through the neighborhood like, hello, we're distributing smoke fish. <laughs> and they're like, wow, what a treat. <laughs> wow, you tell your dad he's so kind and all of this. And we're like, no, we're being punished. <laughs> but they were grateful, but I'll never forget that. After that, he didn't have to remind us anymore. Yeah. Oh, I have to ask, how, how did you smoke the fish? Oh, one thing that was on the island was there was a a rack because there's a grill that people used to uh, grill fish or something. Mm. So we had to find some things to tie the edges of it and tie it to the tree to make it hang. And then, yeah, and then we put the firewood underneath and then we lay out all the fish on top of that. Uh It worked. Mm. Yeah. We, we we created something, but man, it was hard work. And when yeah. you're young like that, yeah, it's hard, but <laughs> lesson learned. Yeah. <laughs> and how much were these camping and fishing trips a chance to bond with your dad? Oh, a lot. I think that we come from a very close-knit family, and I think it's because of those things. So even to this day, we still continue those traditions and... I think that was, besides from him enjoying watching us, enjoying ourselves and learning, he he would say to me as I got older and I had children, he says, resilient people are people who grew up with happy childhood memories. And he says, those become your safety net for bouncing back. He says, if you have happy childhood memories, Those are the things that'll keep you from falling down too hard and too far, that it's difficult for you to get up and and start again. Mm -hmm. And so he 
is reminding me now that you've become a parent, you have to make sure that your children grow up with a lot of that. I thought everybody does this until I started participating in different kinds of learning mediums where we're talking about child development and uh, creating resilient communities and resilient youth and and then I start it starts to surface all of these things and so it, it makes me uh, really grateful mm. that I had that kind of environment yeah tell me about the early mornings on the water with him yeah he would say like we need to go really early in the morning we'd camp out on an island and he would say are you coming trolling tomorrow and I'm like yeah and he's like we got to be gone before sunrise. And I said, yeah, I'll be there. He would say, like, if you are not up and it's time to go, I have to go. I cannot wait for you because it's bad luck, he says. I think it kind of uh, breaks the momentum and the energy. Um, so he had a lot of those rules with fishing. And I'd say, yes, I'll, I'll be there. Just please wake me up as soon as you get up. So we would go out and it's, like everything is so calm and it's like everything is still asleep even the ocean we have a we say that in our own language we say if you travel at a certain hour in the morning across open sea it'll be much calmer because the ocean is still asleep and that's how it feels like as we're going on the boat. It's early in the morning, the air's crisp and cold, and it's everything is asleep, even the ocean. And then we go outside of the reef. And then we he he would tell me, Okay, from this depth to that depth is where the fish is feeding. Outside of that, they're just aggregating and and there there's no feeding activities. You need to be within this distance as you're fishing. And then we would start to fish. And there would be a lot of fish. He was such an efficient fisherman. He mm. tracked his own fishery so well that you never go out and not catch fish because everything that we do is so calculated. Like if this is the lunar cycle, this is the area where we're fishing. This is the kind of fish that we're catching. Therefore, we need this kind of tools. So we never go out and come home with nothing. Mm. And so we'd go out there and it would be so calm and you'd think that there's nothing moving. But then we start reeling in the fish and, and then he'll tell me, that's enough. We've yeah. already gotten our share. But even at that, we never go home without feeding the household in our neighborhood. Every time we come home from fishing, it doesn't matter if you broke the rule or not, you're still going to go and feed people in the neighborhood. We never kept all the fish to ourselves. So. Oh, you're listening to Stories from the Pacific on ABC Radio Australia. I'm Bobby McCumber and I'm speaking with Anne Singio, the founder of Palau's Ebil Society, an environmental organisation. And your sense of adventure also drove you to study overseas. Where did you go? I studied in um, the U.S., so I studied in Oregon for 
my undergrad in business, and then I studied in uh, University of Texas for my master's in uh, communications for social change. How was that experience for you, being away from home? It was hard at first, uh, you know, when you come from a small island and you go to school in a big place like that, and there's so many different variables. Uh, It's not just the academics, but you have the social, the environmental. So I I struggled at first, but once I understood how the system works and and where to get the help that I need, then it became easier. But if anything, um, it made me appreciate home so much more. You know, when we're little, you grow up watching television and it portrays this amazing place far away where it's like this dream life of having all this material things and uh, and it looks so attractive because it's made to look that way and so we grow up thinking that I want to get as far away from the kind of lifestyle that I'm living on on an island to live in a place like that in a much more modernized place but I think if anything it just makes you realize the value of living so close to the land and the ocean and and growing up in a small community where you know people and you feel secure because you have such a large social safety net compared to being alone in a a foreign land. I think because of our culture where we're so highly sociable and we interact with one another so regularly and growing up in big families, individualism kind of kills that spirit. And I think it's hard on the spirit of an islander, or at least for me as a Micronesian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so I think that those are the, the very things that I thought I need to get away from. I find that those are the very foundations that I need to have sanity. Hmm. When you returned home to Palau, how did you fulfill that wish to be an active part of the community? Well, I started questioning why in Palau we have not integrated learning about how as a, a people we interact with nature and our knowledge of ecology, biodiversity, why is it that we have not began to teach this in the school, but we force this foreign curriculum on our children so they know more about other places in the world than they do their own. And then I mm-hmm. thought, well, the best thing to try and teach a child about their own places, just make sure that they're part of it, that they're interacting with it. And that's how we started the organization and and its mission to teach young people. We saw also this growing disconnection between people and the natural environment. And then you think, how do you ask somebody to take responsibility for the coral reef if they don't know what the coral reef should look like. Mm. Tell me about your work in public health and, and why it led you to start the EBL Society. Well, I worked in public health and it was really um, establishing some community health centres. 
the whole effort was to try and bring health into the community so that people actually have ownership to increase the sense of ownership to their own health. And hopefully it helps with them living more healthier lives and choosing uh, healthier options in life. And so as I was doing that, every time I, I would host uh, this community meetings, we talked about the the health status of the individual communities that we were working in, and and there was of course an, an ever increasing levels of uh, non communicable disease in the communities of Palawan. And as much as we talk about this, it doesn't reduce the level of people who are coming in for that for those health problems. And also, I I don't see them connecting, making the connections. And I always felt like it was just a one-way communication. It was always us telling them, this is what's happening in your community. It's not healthy. And that you should be choosing better ways of living. And it'll be done and it's so quiet. And I'd be like, anybody have questions? And it's no one has any questions. Mm. And if they try to be polite by just to say something, it would be so out of context with what we were talking about. And I would always struggle and I would always come back and say, why am I not able to make this connection? And then we chartered the organization. And every time we did something like communities coming together to teach their own children about the natural environment, there was so much more interest in sharing what they know and sharing what they think is right and taking ownership for their decisions. And and it was so much more rewarding. And I found myself really kind of gravitating towards it. And I asked an elder, I said, how is it that you know well the communities you work within? And he said to me, you have to be willing to go and sleep in that community and sit at the dock with the people in the community, go to the farms, talk to them. You have to be at that level to understand what their values are. And then you can make relevant decisions and support systems. And one of the initiatives you have is a kids' summer camp. What happens on those camps? Oh, it's exhausting, but it's a lot of fun. <laughs> it's a lot of really. I when when I first started the program, I would be doing it alone in the summer, and I would have anywhere from forty kids to sixty kids, and I would lose like fifteen pounds at the end of its camp. And I'm like, okay, this is the last time I'm doing this. <laughs> These kids land, they get into the shelter, the the campsite, and then. Every day for an entire week, they're traveling throughout Palau, experiencing and seeing the best places in Palau, the best natural spaces in Palau, and amazing historical sites that remain in the old villages. And they basically explore their own home for an entire week. And then in Mm. the evening, they cook and clean, they do chores, and it's a home, it's a family. And uh, we sit together and we eat and we talk about the day and what we've learned. And then they have to 
working a group, learning it in a team, uh, and then it, every evening they present to us what they've learned out there, and then they use creative ways of communicating what they've learned in the field, whether it's painting or carving wood or many different things. And it, it is exhausting, and I would say it would be the last time I do it, but then I would see these children, and, and they would say, Hi, Auntie Anne. And I would look at him and I'm like, okay, that doesn't look like a relative's child. And I'm like, are you an Abiel kid? And they're like, yeah, and I'm coming back. And they would, we would have like an exit evaluation where they say like, what did they like the most and what they think we should do better. And they all write the same thing best summer of my life and then they'd go home and they cannot stop talking about it to their parents and so then I would see a parent and they're like oh hello you don't know me but I'm so and so's parent and they came to the camp and I just want to thank you oh my god my kids cannot stop (laughs) talking about this and then I have parents who are like can you do a camp for parents and so I (laughs) of course I would say I I don't think so (laughs) but uh, and I I tell them, I don't think you know how to follow rules. And uh, yeah, it'll be hard. But (laughs) yeah, that was about 18 years ago. And now we have a campus and we have dorms. Uh, We can take up to 60 kids at a time. (sighs) We have uh, university programs. So we have college and university interns and graduate students who live with us. They take residence in our campus and and they tag along with all of our community projects of environmental restoration, resource management, and they learn and they contribute to improving the scientific uh, knowledge around the, the resources that we have here in the Pacific. And then those little kids who start at the age of eight eventually become part of our youth research program called the decolonizing research class uh, which looks at the social science on the natural resource and the impact of colonization and then we support them into university programs as well including bringing them into the global uh, platforms uh, at the UN regional level to participate in the conferences, the dialogue on uh, environmental protection. I noticed you didn't mention any smoking of the fish on the summer camps. Oh, yeah, we do. We smoke Oh, fish. you did? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. Oh. oh, yeah. Those are important lessons. It's not hard to see how much of this work has been influenced by the childhood that you've described. How does it make you feel seeing a new generation of children discover the natural world? Oh, it's so beautiful. It's That's the reward. You know, when mm. you see their eyes glow because they've learned something for the first time, when they've experienced something so magical, that's the real reward. And, you know, at the end of each camp, parents will come and sit inside our training room and the kids would stand up and present in a group what they've learned while they were here at the camp. And it's so easy to tell the parents who are here for the first time because they would be sitting in the first row 
and they would just be crying throughout the entire presentation. And at first it was sort of concerning for me. Now I just kind of watch them. Oh, new parents. That's why they're crying. <laughs> yeah. And you yeah. have three children yourself. What legacies are you passing yes, on I to have them? three children. Oh, you know, if anything, I always just tell them that, you know, being happy is, should be the ultimate goal. Do you still go out and explore the islands like you did with your dad? Yeah. I still go out and camp with my kids and go fishing. And um, I'm so ready to retire and just build a house <laughs> on the beach where I can watch the sunset, jump in the ocean. And I think I'll never stop exploring. Yeah. I'm still exploring. And thank you so much for sharing your childhood lessons and all of your adventures with me. Thank you for including me. That was Anne Singio, founder of Palau's Environmental Protection Group, Evil Society. You've been listening to Stories from the Pacific. I'm Bobby McCumber. To catch more great stories about incredible people from the Pacific, just search for ABC Pacific. This story was produced on the lands of the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people.